listening to The Cooler Ring, a podcast made for manufacturing marketers. Here are Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Welcome to The Cooler Ring. My name is Jeff White. Joining me today is Carmen Perry. Carmen, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Jeff. And I feel like every time now I need to highlight the fact that I think your radio voice is getting better. Well, thank you. I appreciate the, uh, that. On the podcast. It's, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, I feel like our listenership is going to grow exponentially the through better, that alone. The better my voice is yeah. on radio. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you hack a couple of cigars before <laughs> before the uh, recording, so you can get more people, raspy. Yeah, so. people that know me know that that's not going to happen. That's but uh, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, we 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 could talk about the weather in this, except that you know we do these asynchronously, so you know they don't necessarily go live at the same time they're happening. But this is kind of the first snowstorm we've had in a while. Yeah, it um, is hard so to get the weather to line up. We'll we'll be publishing this in May or something. If yeah. you want to know what that means. <laughs> Uh, let's just jump right uh, into our guest. I'm really, uh, really excited to see where this is going to lead because I know that a lot of manufacturing marketers really uh, struggle with uh, with demand gen, both not just in the tactical mix about what makes sense there, but in some ways I think they, they lack a, a framework through which to look at it and think about it and, and therefore to kind of help shape their action. I think that's where today's guest uh, may uh, may really help our listeners. For sure. And joining us today is Doug Hunter. Doug is the Senior Director of Corporate Marketing at Lattice Semiconductor. Welcome to the Cooler Ring, Doug. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's fantastic to, to have you join us, Doug. Can you perhaps... Uh, uh, give our listeners just a, a brief overview of what you do at Lattice. Sure thing. Here at Lattice, we, we're a global semiconductor company, about $400 million, and I'm responsible for the public face of the company. I'm responsible for the brand. I'm responsible for communicating our message. But I think more importantly, I'm responsible for generating prospects and nurturing them down the funnel and turning them into leads and marketing qualified leads uh, for a sales force to close. That is incredibly uh, succinct. Uh, and, but it, a, a friend of mine um, uh, is fond of saying that that's when the marketing game uh, fundamentally uh, and irreversibly changed. The minute that marketing became responsible for lead gen and not exclusively mm. a sales mm. function. You know, I really see this as a partnership that it really takes a village. It's, you know, corporate marketing is just one slice of a marketing team. And even, even with sales, sales has got many different layers. There's the direct sales, there's the reps, there's distributors, there's technical sales, there's the FAEs. Um, and you have to work together to go do the lead gen. Mar- marketing is in a unique place in that we have, we have the content. And, and I think fundamentally what's changed out there is, is in the old days, you know, sales used to be taking a glossy brochure and a box of donuts and visiting the engineer in their office or their cubicle. Nowadays, they're doing a lot of their research and making a lot of their decisions before they ever even reach out to the company. And the digital world, the web world, the email world, uh, the, the shift of publications online, it has all fundamentally shifted the way customers interact with us. The number one driver of people to our website is Google. It's the Google search. Half of my traffic comes off of Google search. And I touch more people on a daily basis than our Salesforce does. And so if I can take those people I'm touching and nurture them, 
and qualify them, score and filter them and pass them off to sales, that's a win-win. You know, we've got salespeople who say like, hey, I know this account inside and out. And then we turn up a couple of people uh, via the website and our digital channels that they never knew about. So I, I can reach more people more effectively uh, than sales can. Now, we, we sell a very complex product and I will never actually close a sale myself. And that's where the partnership goes into. We need the sales force to close the deal to maintain that relationship. So it's a symbiosis. Uh, no question, and and and, and any time that uh, that I find when marketers struggle with that uh, that relationship is when they when they get fuzzy, uh, you know, mm. when they don't when they don't want to talk about the leads or they don't want to discuss the quality of what they're sending to sales. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, on the other hand, you don't shy away from this at all. The formula that you've presented. Uh, in, in a, a blog post in February, I think really mm-hmm. um, began to 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 unpack your approach to this and uh, and, and a way of kind of wrapping some quantitative metrics around uh, yeah. what I think some people can sometimes view as being uh, a little hard to wrap your arms around everything mm-hmm. that's going on. Can mm-hmm. you take us through that a bit? Sure thing. Yeah, and this, you know, this wasn't an overnight discovery. This has you know, evolved over time as our programs have evolved. And this is, this is my attempt to kind of put it together. And because I'm more of a quantitative guy, you know, a formula makes sense to me. So, so let me start with just laying out the formula, and then we can dig into each of the independent variables. So the first thing is your message. Then your message is, goes to your content, and your content times distribution. And message, content, and distribution give you results on the back end. And with message, you know, for me, the definition of message is it's your brand identity and it's your story arc. Your brand identity is kind of your, your starting point of where the company is now, how you've positioned yourself. And then the story arc is where you're taking that over time. Every time you introduce a new product into the market, every time there's a competitive response, and then you respond to that, you adjust that brand identity. So you, you have to have a clear sense within message of who you are, but then you've got your products and you need to figure out how to express your message and you express your message through content and you express it in many different ways. so for example, for me, I think in terms of primary and secondary content. So for me, primary content are things like contributed articles, white papers, speeches, webinars, or press releases. And I call these primary content because these are seeds which you can take and you can develop secondary content with, like videos, blogs, infographics, social media posts, or email. So, for example, with my content team, I'll push them to write a contributed article. And then we'll take that contributed article and we'll convert it into a white paper. Then we take that white paper and we convert it into two blog posts. And then we go film it as a video. And then we point social media at all of that. And so there's, there's an exponent on content called reuse. So getting the, the initial seed and then using that across as many different platforms as possible, many different content forms as possible. And depending on whether or not your company is a multinational, as many different languages as possible. So for us, for example, with articles and white papers, our goal is to place them in at least four languages worldwide. And so you get this multiplier, you get this exponential effect with your content. Um, in addition to content that you yourself write, there's the content you can get others to write. 
And that would be things like analyst briefings, trade analyst briefings, Wall Street analyst briefings, uh, or press interviews, where you're talking with people on the outside who then can write content about you and push it through their platforms and channels. So, so far we've had message. You take it and you develop into content, and then you get into distribution. And distribution, these are all your platforms. This is your MarTech stack and your other channels. So this is things like web, email, social media, advertising, uh, press, uh, conferences. And then you get things like events and meetups. And you take your content and you try to shove it through as many of these different platforms as you can. And the good news is a lot of this stuff is, you know, quote unquote, free. So you can take the white paper and put it up on your own website. It becomes a gated vehicle for demand gen. Or when you take your contributed article and you shove it out through the press, you know, they will typically have a larger readership and distribution than the visitors to your website. And you get goodness off of that as well. But one thing that's been interesting for us is we've always had uh, events and trade shows that we go to. This year, we're starting to branch up into meetups. And this is another thing that the kind of the technology explosion has enabled. It's enabled groups of people to self-organize around topics that they're interested in. So, for example, we recently hosted a meetup on artificial intelligence and machine learning in Silicon Valley. And for basically 300 bucks a pizza and a little bit of overtime for our facility staff, we had 50 to 100 people in our facility who were engineers very interested in this topic, which coincidentally Lattice has products for. Um, and it was a very, very cost-effective way to take content that we had developed and push it exactly into a target audience. So what you do, your platforms, your content, always needs to be continually evolving as the market evolves and as the way people consume information evolves. So you take the message, you run it, convert it to content, distribute it across your platforms, and then you get to results. And, and, and there's some obvious ways you can measure results like coverage. You know, did the press pick up the article? How many impressions or hits did I get? But we have to keep in mind as marketers that the name of the game isn't just impressions. It's getting all these people to actually do something. And so for us in our context, it's really drawing people back to the website. How many people are we drawing back to the website? Are we getting them to convert? And then once they've converted, and for us a conversion means they're clicking a buy button, they're clicking a contact me button, for example, or a download button. And then once they've converted, then we score and filter them and turn them into MQLs or marketing qualified leads. You know, we need revenue customers. So getting students or hobbyists, while they're interesting people and potentially future customers, they're not someone who's going to yield revenue today. Or someone who's working at a much older product that's uh, not as interesting as someone who's looking at a newer, higher margin product. So we'll score and filter to prioritize for sales. So you start at one end of the funnel with your, your brand and your story arc, and you hopefully end up at the other end of the funnel with MQLs. And that, in a nutshell, along that show is it is what i call pr math i have uh, i i have at least uh i don't know it feels like a hundred questions now coming out of that go, let go, me try to just go for it yeah yeah let me just try a lot of points you can dive in on so. yeah exactly um well one thing is that it i think you know many marketers these days are 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 obviously quite uh, wise to the benefits of of content reuse and repurposing, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know. I guess 
it feels to me that in a lot of the conversations I have is that they don't necessarily think of translation through that same lens. Hmm. Like they don't necessarily see translating a piece of content into another language as reuse of content. It seems like it's somehow less important or significant. And, and I, I come from a, a very kind of small part of Canada that's the only um, bilingual uh, jurisdiction, the only bilingual province in the country. Um, uh, and I think maybe it just makes me a little bit more sensitive to uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the language dynamics um, uh, of it all. I, I, what, what has been your experience there? Um, sure. Of the content repurposing that you're doing, how significant has the translation side of it actually been? So for us, again, we're a global company, and we produce content in three languages, English, uh, simplified Chinese, and Japanese. Uh, at one point, we also had Korean. We flirted with German. Um, but our, our core three languages have come down to English, Chinese, and Japanese. And, and what we have found is that people generally respond better to their heart language. I mean, you think about you know when you've traveled overseas, for example, you know, if you've been to Asia, for example, where the, you know, the characters are completely different and you see a sign written in English and you gravitate to it because that, that, that's a language which you know and what you're familiar with. And so if I'm trying to get an engineer to engage with a highly technical white paper, getting them to read it in a second language that they struggle with it is not going to be highly effective. And so for me, I have made the decision to invest uh, translating all of my primary assets and website and emails into Chinese and Japanese. Now, when we're looking for press coverage, for example, when we have a major announcement, we may translate into at least 10 different languages. Because again, when it lands on the editor's desk, we're more likely to get the press release pickup uh, in France if we're dropping off a French language press release. It, it's so, uh, I mean, in one hand, it seems so obvious. Um, and it seems so obvious that it actually it, it can be, I, I think, it, because it's so obvious, it can be a challenge uh, when when people uh, say things like "ah, oh, English know, is the language of business." Yeah, or or <laughs> it's the language of engineers yeah. or something. No, not necessarily. <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, the other the other piece of this too. I mean, as you well know, Doug, you know, if you're sending content into China at all, you're not dealing with a framework in terms of search, uh, social yeah, media is absolutely. completely different. Mm-hmm. Everything, you know, mm-hmm. buying ads, yep. uh, you know, and on their search engines are, are 100% different than they are yep. over here. So uh, how much of a challenge has that been to uh, to kind of learn and to navigate the Chinese system? Well, and let's break that down to two different bits. One bit is content and the other bit is distribution. So for the content side, I have two staff translators that sit in our facility in Shanghai. And what we have found is because we have a technical product, there's a corpus of technical terms that you have to learn and using outside third-party agencies for doing the translation, you just don't get the consistent quality that you need, uh, you know, that's, that's consistent aligns with our brand. Um, then you get into distribution and you're absolutely right. So for example, Twitter is blocked in China. YouTube is blocked in China. Facebook is blocked in China. So we have Youku instead of YouTube, <clears throat> Weibo instead of Twitter, and instead of Facebook, we're using what's called WeChat, which is actually one of the biggest social media platforms in the world. 
and we generate content in China for those platforms. And, and that also kind of is a harbinger of, of a larger trend that I'm doing with my team, which is the move from translation to localization. So you know, initially you start off by just saying, hey, here's my English content, translate it word for word, phrase for phrase. Localization says, we recognize that the market in your country is different. And we're going to tailor the content to reflect that your market is different and you do things in different ways. You know, even things like contests, the type of contest you would run on Twitter or LinkedIn is different than the type of contest that you would run on Weibo or WeChat. Or the way if I wanted to run a webinar here in the US, I go to a major magazine publisher and partner with them. If they want to write one or webinar in China, I'm having to use uh, a platform like WeChat is what we're exploring currently for that. But I think the key here is finding boots on the ground. It's actually having people in country who can help you out. So if you try to do everything from the U.S., you're going to miss stuff because you're not part of that culture and you don't fundamentally understand it. Most manufacturers are converting barely any of their existing website visitors into leads. If you want to get better than your competition at finding good prospects online, start by watching our webinar, How to Manufacture Better Content. This webinar from Coolering host Jeff White will teach you how to produce manufacturing-focused content that works. Watch it now at bit.ly slash hmbcwebinar. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash hmbcwebinar. I think that uh, translation to localization is just beautiful and incredibly instructive to to our listeners. That if there's one thing from this that they take away, I would say uh, to, to me, it's just that mm-hmm. challenge to to get there. <laughs> well, and I mean, what a a giant mm-hmm. step mm-hmm. from the buyer persona. Mm. <laughs> you know, like your buyer persona is this very vague notion of who's buying your thing. Although, you know, to take that and mm-hmm. begin to move into ensuring that you have content, not just for the type of person and the type of engineer is buying from you, but also yeah. in a more localized communication medium. I mean, it, absolutely. It's just, well, and I, it's I think you're touching on something here, which is the difference between I, content and context marketing. There's been a lot of press about content marketing, just having all the right written and visual assets. Context, I think, is the next wave. And so it's giving people the content at the right place in their buyer's journey, which I think also includes exactly what you hit on, is their persona is somebody from a different culture. And a lot of people I don't think are sensitive to context yet. I uh, I don't want to lose sight of this uh, question, uh, but I also I, I kind of feel like you've just presented this perfect opportunity for us to shift into content <laughs> and context. Um, but I'm going to go back anyway because why not? And we go can edit it. this after mm-hmm. and challenge our, our editors to do that. You always um, say that because you're not the one editing. <laughs> yeah, makes <laughs> it easier. Uh, I guess when you said that you translated into three or four different languages as standard and then obviously more for press uh, outreach and things of that sort, um, I guess it's in some ways, uh, you know, Asian marketplaces are very different. And um, the uh, propensity for those buyers to have a strong grasp of English would be less than, say, mm-hmm. another market that you referenced, yeah, which Germany. is Germany. Yeah. Um, but you seem to indicate that you've chosen not to translate as frequently in Germany 
as you have in mm -hmm. Asia. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to, because my gut would tell me that the benefits would accrue in the same way in Germany as they would in Asia by being more uh, contextually sensitive. But when, when you are in an environment that is not resource constrained, in other words, when you have the money in the headcount, you're right. But when you don't have the money in headcount, you've got to say, I can only afford to sustain translation in three languages or two languages. Which ones do I pick? And, th and this goes back to you know the partnership that we talked about between sales and marketing. And what we did is we went out and took both a qualitative and quantitative approach. The qualitative approach is to go out and talk to the local sales force and say, how important is translation really uh, for your market? And when you, when you talk to the folks in Germany versus Japan, what you get back is it's really, really important in Japan because their English skills are much lower. You go to Germany. I remember being in Germany and walking into stores and talking to the clerks in German and them responding to me in English. And this English. is what happens if you go to Quebec City in Canada, as okay. well be noted, yeah, even okay. if your French is really good. <laughs> yeah, well, we won't get into French. Um, but the, but, but, the, but the, the Germans have excellent English at all different levels, um, from the store clerks through the highly advanced engineers. And so it's just not as important. And, and that's the feedback that we got from the local sales force. The quantitative is when you go to, for example, Google Analytics, and look at where your traffic is coming from for each of your web properties, we just didn't see, you know, we, we didn't see high drop-off rates or anything else indicating that English was a problem, as much of a problem for the Germans as it was for other languages. You know, and incidentally, based on the data, that's why we killed our Korean website, is because we looked at the traffic, we looked at how they were interacting with the English site, we went back to the sales force, and said, you really need this in Korea? And it's like, no, in Korea, the English is good enough. We don't need it. So it's when you've got scarce resources, you got to make choices and you got to make it in partnership with your sales partners. I think that's some great advice and great insight into your decision-making process around that. And, you know, like, like you say, yeah, yes, it's great when resources aren't constrained. You can, uh, you'd go to full localization in every market, but that's obviously not reality. Yeah. Um, when it comes to... Um, uh, I mean, we've talked a fair bit about the content side of this. We haven't talked about the messaging side of that. Mm -hmm. So if you were diagnosing this or if you were looking at improving the, the various variables of the equation um, in order to obviously improve the outcome, um, how would you how would you frame up your thinking around improving the message? Is it one largely of clarity and consistency? There's clarity and consistency are critical, but there also has to be truth and believability. Um, and and it's, it's do you, when you're building your brand architecture, do you have those proof points? Do you have those pillars supporting it that, that resonate and ring true with your audience? You know, for us, for example, we have specialized in making small, low power things. If we try to go out there and start saying like, we've got the highest performance stuff in the business, Nobody's going to believe us. I can say it very clearly. I can say it very often. I can put it in really fancy language. But if I don't have those proof points underneath, it's not going to fly. So for us, it's really coming up with a genuine message, a message that really resonates and is consistent with what the customer is actually experiencing when they interact with us. I feel like um, we're, uh, we're going to run out of time before we run out of questions, which uh, is usually a good indication 
uh, you know, it's, got, it's a good indication that the, the conversation is going well usually For when sure. that happens. I wonder, um, you, you had mentioned that you, you thought the a bit of the, the next frontier um, was context, and I'm assuming that that didn't just refer to, to language and culture. Um, so um, if that is indeed uh, your answer around what's the next big thing in manufacturer demand gen, mm-hmm. then I guess unpack that a bit further. And uh, if that yeah. isn't your answer, then I'd love to hear what is. No, I think it is context. And I think context happens at many different levels. You know, context just isn't, you know, the cultural level that we talked about earlier when we talked about translation and localization. It's also about where they are in their buyer's journey. So for us, for example, we know when someone is earlier on in their decision-making process, they'll look at what I call a lighter asset, such as a video or a brochure. And then they'll start to get more interested in the process and more interested in what we're doing and start to consider and prefer us. And then they'll start looking at things like white papers, which start their user guides, documents that get more technical. And finally, when they get down to the point when they're either downloading the software necessary to use their product or they're getting down and getting data sheets and technical manuals, then they're highly, highly committed. And that's, you know, the challenge is how do you present those assets to people at all these different stages of the funnel, all these different stages of the journey? And there's many ways you can do that. You know, and if some of your listeners work for a really large company, they probably have a whole team around their content management system that can do all this personalization and targeting. And they have these AIs and they have these models and uh, more power to them. And that's what I aspire to. For someone like us with a smaller team, we do it much more informally. So, for example, we'll make sure that all, we have mapped the customer's journey and we know what type of assets they consume at each part of the pipe. And we've tried to have those assets available on the web page so people can self-select them because I don't necessarily have the technology and the models to systemically present them. Um, but what we have done is we've customized our homepage. We actually have four different homepages based on if you're one of our three core markets or the fourth homepages, we don't know what you are, so we just send you a shotgun of material. And that's based on the customer when they fill out web forms declaring what, you know, what market segment they're in. And over time, as we have more capacity and more time and money, we'll start doing more content targeting across the rest of the website, which is getting back into context. I, I wonder, I should tell you in advance of this question that it's a bit of uh, sport here at Kula to <laughs> endeavor to quote no country for old men in the middle of Anything. Anything, really. Anything. If you, okay. If you can work No Country for Old Men into a conversation, it's automatically a plus one. Uh, and there's a scene in that movie where uh, they're talking about, um, uh, I guess, the, the series of uh, auto thefts uh, that uh, ha- have just transpired and trying to imagine where the suspect might be. And the deputy says, well, that's very linear, Sheriff. Um, and it occurred to me, uh, you know, when we talk about, um, when we talk about this, uh, the types of content that map against a buyer's journey, it's very often the case that we think, oh, well, it's lighter, uh, you know, lighter content that early on, then they engage with a more technical white paper. And then it's, Mm -hmm. I guess. Has that really translated in your experience? Uh, Has the buying decision 
have have they actually proven to be to appear that linear and aggregate as you uh, as you kind of analyze the behavior of online behavior of buyers and customers? Well, I, I think the other thing that was implied with my comments was a time scale. You know that you know that over the course of days and weeks and months and years, people run through this funnel. That time scale might be thirty seconds, you know, or you know, or you know, thirty minutes, where someone comes to our website. And, and very quickly moves through, sees their brochure, sees the tables, watches the two-minute video, and bam, they're downloading a data sheet. So looking at the statistics of what people download, um, absolutely, I know that I'm having people downloading you know, across the site hundreds of white papers, watching hundreds of videos, and on and on down there. So I know all these assets are getting hit. Is it completely linear? No, probably not. You're probably right. It's all over the map. But what I do know is the assets are being consumed, which does validate that those assets are needed, and it's helping the people through the funnel. Well, the linearity of the model at least helps in uh, conceiving of the model and in executing against it, even though potentially people don't move through it in that same predictable way. Uh, it does still help deliver a cohesiveness of experience that might not otherwise be there. But you've also, as I say, you've also highlighted a danger in the model. Because if you move from, you know, so the, the simplistic approach which I've taken at this point is to put all the content and all the assets on the site and let people self-select. So the stuff is there and it's visible. If we move to the more advanced targeting model that says, oh, no, only what we think you want shows up and we get the model wrong, then I'm potentially serving people the wrong stuff at the wrong time and hindering my funnel. So there, there's, there's, a, there's an interesting dilemma there. It is kind of raises the stakes on getting your models right. Yeah, yeah. yeah no kidding. And I think that, you know, there, the, other, the other piece of that too is that context isn't only delivering content to people at the point when they require that thing. Obviously, mm -hmm. that's a big part of the context, but mm -hmm. it's, it's also how they're consuming it as well. I mean, especially if you're talking about Asian markets, you know, the propensity of mobile devices as mm -hmm. primary and, and mm -hmm. things like that. And thinking about that experience, through, oh, absolutely. you know, not just when in the cycle are they looking at this, but what are they doing while they do it, you know? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Can, can I tell you a story around that? Please. Which is, which is um, you know, when I first started here, we had less than 1% to 3% of our traffic was coming off of mobile. Now we're consistently seeing... 10 to 20, 15 to 20% come our traffic coming off of mobile. But when you disaggregate the data, there's a disproportionate of that data coming off of Google AdWords. And the amount of traffic that we have coming in off of Google AdWords and mobile is close to 50%, way, way higher than the rest of the site. And what's happening is people, this is my inference, is that people is they are sitting on the train or sitting on the bus or however they're getting to work, especially in Asia, are sitting there doing Google searches for products like mine. And then when they get to their office, they will actually you know, sit down and dig in deeper. But we were seeing huge drop-off rates and huge yield losses in our AdWords traffic because our site was not mobile optimized. So we went back, completely redid our website, specifically to accommodate people who are viewing our ads, doing Google searches while they sat on trains or buses. Were you able to align that research against actual like commuting times? Like, 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like times I, of the day. Was when, it 8 a.m. in Taiwan? Yeah, yeah. Like we're seeing a big. Well, it, it, it's it, that, that goes back to the resource question. <laughs> you know, if, if I had a dedicated analyst, yeah, we could go dig into that. But the reality was, it's like, hey, I'm losing massive amounts of people because I'm not mobile optimized. Let's go fix it. And, yeah. you know, and, and that's what we did. Yeah, that was enough information to, to warrant the solution. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I think that, that that was a Jeff. I really like that um, that that redirect on context, uh, not just being about what you're consuming and at what stage in the buyer's journey you're consuming it, but then context being the device and screen size that you're consuming mm-hmm. it on, mm-hmm. and even like you say the the, the context of doing. consuming it by a, during a commute versus desktop yeah. research mm-hmm. uh, is a completely different mm-hmm. scenario. Well, and, and the challenge for us is, you know, as, as marketers with smaller teams is where do you start? Cause there's just so many different dimensions you can go down. And this is, this is where you kind of have to look at the data versus your gut. You know, how much of what we translate is based on gut feel from talking to salespeople, how much of how we optimize is based off of Google analytics data. It's worth spending the time to figure out where your highest value hits are, um, because because the problem isn't what you should do. The problem is what you should like not do, because there's so much opportunity, and, and and so little time. And so if you spend a certain amount of time going down a, the, the the wrong path, um, you know it's just it's hard to get back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I do think the marketers are faced with that more uh, now than ever. That the options for spending their time mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the more and more you chase what's been took from you, the more that's going out the door. Yeah, <laughs> that's a see now. That, that's a very advanced "No Country for Old Men" reference that he just tried to slide in there. You guys are inspiring uh, me to go back and watch it again. Oh, it happens every time we have one of these things. I don't know. I mean, uh, it, there's probably, if, if somebody is watching the data on uh, iTunes movie views or whatever, and they see this continuous spike uh, around times when, when when we're recording a podcast. Call the Coen brothers and ask for our cut. Yeah, exactly, exactly. yeah. Uh, anyway, Doug, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really thank you for taking the, the time to, to chat with us uh, today and, and, and kind of uh, really dig into this. Uh, I feel like you've just given our listeners so much to think about around the dynamics of demand gen uh, for manufacturers, and I, I thank you for it. Jeff Carmen, it's been a pleasure, and uh, best of luck to you guys. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to The Cooler Ring with Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Don't miss a single manufacturing marketing insight. Subscribe now at coolapartners.com slash thecoolerring. That's K-U-L-A partners.com slash thecoolerring.